Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today, we hear the voice of Janet Liu. Originally from Taiwan, Janet's family spent years trying to build a home together in the United States despite restrictive immigration policies. Janet had always wanted to build a relationship with her father, who had left to study in the United States when she was only four years old. After six years, they were finally able to reconnect, until a single, unexpected day shattered Janet's family. Natalia Lopez has this story. I was coming home from school, and I saw an ambulance in front of our house. And then the ambulance drove away. And that was the last of my father. His kidney had failed, even though he had gone, you know, to to treatments. And... So that was that. And our world collapsed after that. When Janet was four years old, her father left his family in Taiwan to study nuclear physics at Indiana University. As Janet grew up, she had minimal contact with her father. There were no visits, no phone calls. It was just her mother, her younger brother, and herself. I have no recollection of my father before we immigrated to the U.S. later. But there were two national scholarships Taiwan gave out, all expenses paid. And my father tested and, com- and was awarded that award. So he came to U.S. fully paid. To come to the United States, you have to have a visa. And so my father came under the student visa. The visa did not allow you to take your family. It was only for you to get your education and then presumably go back to where you came from. There were no provision for you to stay on. I have very little awareness of my father in our life. I, I didn't ask about him, and if my mother just mentioned him, it was like, it was just a concept. I had no idea that there was a person behind that word. So I remember once we went out to eat, and my mother said, we're going out to eat to celebrate a birthday. And I said, it's not my birthday. It's not my brother's birthday. It's not my mother's birthday. And so finally, I went through a plethora of names, and finally my mother said, it's your father's birthday. My father did send us gifts. He sent us construction sets. So they they were like tinker toys. And he also sent me party dresses, really pretty dresses that was not available in Taiwan. So I I could stand out with these American party dresses. Then I can say, my father sent it to me, but I really didn't know what it meant. It just came from some someplace exotic. My mother was a very capable person. She worked as an accountant. So she would go off to work and she would leave us with our maid, an elderly woman who take care of the two of us, the children, and took care of the house and would go shopping for groceries every day. And it was fun to go with her to the market. And then we would come home and she would cook for us. When my mother returned, you know, we would just then pester her and, you know, just kind of 
share things with my mother that we wouldn't do with a maid, even though the maid was very kind to us. But my mother was, I think my mother really loved us and tried to spend time with us. I remember some of the friends would say that whenever they invited my mother to a party, they can assume she would come along with her two children. In 1961, when Janet was 10 years old, her father began the lengthy process of trying to bring his family to the United States. But the U.S.'s restrictive immigration policies at the time gave little hope that the Liu family would be reunited. But my father finished his degree, and then he started to work. And he wanted to stay in America because, you know, he got a Ph.D. in nuclear physics, and there was no job opportunity like that in Taiwan. And so he wanted to stay here, and he wanted to bring his family here. But our family couldn't come. He would have found out that for Asians, there were immigration quotas. And these quotas were set on how many of that ethnic group is in the U.S. And because the Chinese had been excluded from coming to America since 1882 to 1961, so there was a very small population of Chinese in America. So when the quota system came along, they got a quota of 105 people per year. 105 is not a feasible number for ordinary people like us. You know, we had no poll, we had no money. So we were going to be on the bottom of the, you know, whatever list there was. So my father found out that it would probably take the rest of his life for us before we could come over. And so he decided to to find out whether there were other ways. Two years later, in 1961, after President John F. Kennedy was elected, my father was advised to approach Robert Kennedy, who was attorney general, since Robert Kennedy had a reputation of being sympathetic to family hardships. My father then wrote to Robert Kennedy. My father's English was excellent, and that letter must have been very effective because shortly after, President Kennedy signed a presidential executive order to allow the families of valuable scientists to come to America and to wait for their quota in America. And my father had prepared my mother while probably when he was um, communicating with Robert Kennedy that there's a possibility that my mother and the two children can come over, so get prepared to come. And as soon as my father found out that order had been signed, he telegrammed my mother and said, come. And she knew, she, and probably my father made her understand that this is urgent, that these things may not last. You know, this presidential order, you know, could be, could be nullified in, in some way. The excitement of being in this dream country, I think probably drove my mother to, to get everything wrapped up and to come to America. I don't know how long it took her, but probably less than a week, she got us on that plane. Janet was sad to leave the life she had in Taiwan, but excited to go to the United States to finally meet her father. They packed their things and left Taiwan. We took a plane, landed in Guam, transferred to another plane, and then in Honolulu. So Honolulu is the first American stop. And my mother showed the immigration officer the executive order. 
and the man had never seen anything like that. We were the first to come to the United States on that order. So he had no idea. Nobody told him this thing is going to allow people to come over. And this, this is not through the immigration. This is an executive order. You know, he usually gets his orders from the chain. And then all of a sudden, the president sends this thing. And he had to verify and learn what it's all about. I imagine he called Washington, D.C. and said, you know, I have this piece of paper. You know, is it legit? And so we were let in. We had to walk down on the tarmac, and they put a lay around us, and we were just thrilled over in America now. And then that evening, we took off, found out that the propellers on our plane wasn't working. So we had to come back and get that fixed. So we were there a day. And so my mother rented a taxi, and we took a tour of the island. And then the next day, we got on the plane, and we landed in Los Angeles, and my mother took us to Disneyland. And my brother and I just had a wonderful time. And then after Los Angeles, then we went to San Francisco because my, my mother had a brother there. And then after that, we landed in Chicago. My father had been there waiting for three days and three nights. He did not know of all these problems. The, the propeller problem in Hawaii, our visit to Disneyland, and then visiting my uncle in San Francisco. He did not show any stress. He had waited for his family for several years, and he was just so glad that, you know, three days is nothing to him to wait at the airport. So he welcomed us. After many years of uncertainty, the Liu family had finally reunited in America. But for Janet, her struggles in America started on her first day of school. They put me in fourth grade, even though I had finished fourth grade in, in Taiwan. So I started in fourth grade, and... I didn't even know ABC, so they put me in first grade for reading. And so here I was, 10 years old, with a bunch of little five and six-year-olds in first grade. And so we start with C. Dick Run, C. Jane Run. So that's how they did it, but in math. So I had a few days in fifth grade in, in Taiwan, and we were learning to take square roots and cube roots of numbers. And I come here, and the kids in fourth grade were trying to multiply double digits together. So there was no problem with math. And my father was teaching me algebra at home. But that, you know, they gave me some breathing room. So while they're struggling with a math problem, I'm listening to, you know, what they're talking about. So I can have a crash course in, in things I'm deficient in. But I think that was a good thing to put me in with first graders. Even though my self-esteem was, was shot, that was a way to pick it up because you know there were some children who didn't have reading in their home, so they were starting with me, but at least they can speak. I couldn't even speak. I was always the only Asian, or my, my brother and I were the only Asian in school. But my, my parents did have Chinese friends, so when they gathered, then I would play with their kids. But that's, that's once in a while. That's not day, on a daily basis. I think the language barrier was the biggest problem. But I did make friends. I remember I had in several girlfriends. One taught me how to ice skate. And one taught me about Barbie balls. Through them, I, I adjusted to American life. You know, they would invite me over to their house. And I had an insight into um, how Americans lived. So every night after dinner, we would clean the dining table and we'd sit down and do homework. 
and my father would help us interpret what had happened during the day. So one time I asked my father, this little boy said this to me. What does it mean? So the little boy has said, Chinese, Japanese, Americanese. And so my father had to explain to me that the boy probably didn't know what he was doing. He was imitating adults. I don't think so. And uh, not to take him seriously. We're from a civilized country with 5,000 years of history. So that's how he tried to appease us. But I think that was, that was about the only time. Her father had always wanted to teach. So two years after Janet arrived, he became a professor at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. When Janet's family relocated to Oklahoma in 1963, the rented house they lived in became their first family home. So we moved two years later. We rented a house from University of Oklahoma professor who was on sabbatical, and it was lovely. It had the piano. I had taken piano lessons in Taiwan, and it had stopped when we came because there was no piano in Madison. But in Oklahoma, we had a piano, and my father started my piano lessons. I wasn't good, but I loved it. I loved it. I needed, I needed music. But with piano, I, I'm, I'm lost. I get lost in the beauty of it. I think my father took an active interest in the education of his children, you know, whether it's academic or other, or outside of school. When he found out that I was good in math, I was in fifth grade, he tried to teach me algebra. And he tried to teach me about Chinese history. And when I said I like to draw, he got me a drawing book. And I remember there was a, they call it brain teaser problems. So you finish, finish a regular homework, there were these extra credit problems. And one time I was stumped by this brain teaser. So I went to my father and he was sitting on the sofa scribbling away. And he just put it aside, listened to what I wanted, and then helped me solve that problem. I think education is so important to him. So he wanted to help me develop my mind. But he, he also understood to take time with children, to spend time with them. Once we were outside the house, just the two of us, and I think it was a blue sky day. And I asked my father, why is the sky blue? And he looked at me and he said, that is a very good question. And he proceeded to explain to me why the sky is blue. I don't remember that explanation, but I do remember feeling so happy. I was becoming very attached to him because he led me into his circle. He was paying attention to me. He was not trying to shoo me away as an annoying brat. My father had a, had a good grasp of what it is to be a father, to be a good father. He paid attention to me, and he made me feel like a valued person. Just as Janet was finally able to begin building a relationship with her father, she came home one day to see an ambulance in front of her house. Blaring sirens and flashing ambulance lights were the last memories she ever associated with her father. She was only 12 years old. You know, emotionally, my mother and I, and probably my brother, you know, emotionally, we were just, we were devastated by the loss of this man. But materially, we were also devastated because my father was our breadwinner. 
and now my mother had to make a living. And her English was, you know, just, just very simple English. So the future was very bleak for us for a while there. We had to move out of that house, and we moved into a one-bedroom apartment. All of us slept on this big bed. Three of us slept on this big bed. Before we, you know, my brother and I each had our own bedroom, and our parents had their own bedroom. Now the three of us were all together. And we really didn't know how, how life was going to be. I remember having a nightmare, falling down this well. And there was no end to it. I just kept falling. And that was my idea of my life. I didn't know when I was going to land. We were just falling, you know, missing my father and having our go-between to America gone. Because Janet's father held the visa, which allowed Janet and her family to enter the United States, his death thrust their legal status and their entire lives into uncertainty. Well, these very official-looking letters came, and my mother wanted me to translate. And so I had to look up what deportation meant, and it had a date on it, and we were to leave this country by this and this and date. So I told my mother that. I can only translate. I, I don't know what to do with it. My mother went to the university, and the head of physics, I think, approached the president of the university, who then approached the U.S. senator from Oklahoma, who graduated from University of Oklahoma, and asked him for help. And the senator then introduced a congressional bill for my, our family to stay in the U.S. legally. And until the senator introduced the bill for us, the deportation notices came, you know, on a regular basis. And once the bill was introduced, our status was um, to be decided. So we were not officially illegal because our status is in question. Because we, we were in Never Neverland, we, we really didn't know. Like a lot of immigrants now, we don't, they don't know whether they're okay or not. And then when the bill died at the end of Congress, so sometime in June, then the deportation letters would start again. And then when Congress convened in September, you know, a bill would be introduced for us, and then the deportation letters would stop. And then it passed the Senate, but it failed in the House, so we're illegal again, then we get the more notice. It was rumored that the senator was going to retire. So my mother thought, well, the senator is going to retire. We have no connections in the House, so this is a dead role. We have to go find some other role. So um, her brother was in California, and so she decided to pull up roots and go to California and try our luck there. So we moved to old California, and so we took the Greyhound bus. We each had our little suitcases. You know, you try not to pack too much or too heavy. That's the advantage of being immigrant. You don't get attached to things. You've, you know, moved to move from China to, to America. I think you, you know, you, you keep your heart a little bit more protected. <laughs> yeah. You, you've been, you know, you, you learn to shed. You learn not to be attached. When they arrived in California, Silicon Valley was not a busy tech center, but instead a sprawling landscape of fertile farmland. It was an agricultural area. There were just these big platters 
of apricots drying in the sun. As you drive down the road, there'll be on the side of the road, apricots, Italian plums, corn. There was just so much produce and fruits. That's where my uncle was. He worked for IBM and they had a plant in San Jose. So that's where he was. And we landed in his home. And he had just had a kid. He was learning to be a father. And then this family of three drops in. And his sister tells him that she needed him to help her with her immigration. My uncle said, no, he can't help. He had nothing else to, to um, extra to offer. That 1965 immigration law didn't do us any good. Allow people with certain skills to immigrate to America. My mother did not qualify. So we were still hounded by the immigration. So my mother got a job at a bank and she must have talked to lots and lots of people. But finally, the personnel manager took an interest in my mother's immigration problem. And he approached Congressman Charles Goopser and Charles Goopser took on our case. And the following year, the congressional bill to allow my mother and her two children to become legal residents was passed in both the Senate and the House. We all got green cards. My mother's a fighter. There was no room to be sad, to be sorrowful. We had a goal. We had to finish school, go on to college, and go on for our PhD. There, there, was, there was no wavering. My mother, that was, I think that was my mother of countering things, is to fight, to fight with your last breath. I think that's what drove me because I saw what my mother had to go through. I saw the hardship my mother went through. She would come home from work and she would cry because people were being mean to her. Her English wasn't good. She didn't have money to throw around. We didn't take fancy vacations. She had, she had done her battle. She got us, the permanent residents. Now the rest, you know, the, the financial thing was going to be up to me to make us comfortable. Janet began to focus her energy on excelling in school. She found herself continuing to be drawn to math and science, despite the lack of female representation in these subjects during the 1960s. Her passion for academics paved her journey as a woman of color in STEM. I started at Camden High School in San Jose, and I went to ninth grade. So it was not a particularly good neighborhood, but, you know, my mother had already laid the foundation for my brother and me, so... We knew not to look left or right, but just go straight down the road to get our college degree. I was always the only Asian in my classes. But in the whole school, there was one Japanese woman. I was inevitably the only woman. So I wanted to take all the sciences, biology, chemistry, physics. To me, that, you know, you offered it, I want to take those. But in those days, you have to take your class schedule to your counselor and have him or her sign off to, to see that, you know, they were appropriate classes for you. And this woman counselor told me, girls don't take chemistry. I, I had no idea, you know, chemistry was going to be so daunting. But I can't, you know, I can't drop it just, just not without taking it. So I said, I'm going to college and I need chemistry. I don't want to be poor. I wanted to get a college degree and make money. Yes, and I wanted to leave in my mother's burden. And then I can think about other stuff. And I need to get my mother off 
um, the survival mode. I wanted us to sit back and sort of look at life and enjoy it rather than you know, worrying about, you know, we don't have enough money. So I finished high school in three years. I finished in, when I finished junior high. I had taken all the classes. So I went to San Jose State because um, we had just got our permanent residence in 67, and they would charge me an out-of-state tuition. And I didn't want to do that and plus pay for living expenses. I got to Berkeley and I found out that, you know, San Jose State was really just an extension of high school. Berkeley was really, really a university. I had something like 3.98 GPA. Berkeley had no problem taking me. I didn't have to declare a major, and I played around, took some physics courses, and then they got into electric mag and magnet magnetism. I was totally lost. I said, okay, no physics for me. I'll just stick with math. I was kind of scared to leave home, but I think I think the mental challenge was, was, was very exciting to me. Oh, it was so fun. So fun. It, it finally met some of the challenge I was looking for. It, it, it was not a shoe-in anymore. School was, school was hard. I had to work. That was good. Rather than feel like I'm wasting my time. I feel very proud for the work I did. I had to really work hard. I remember, you know, the professor was assigned 10 problems to do for a class. It took me two hours to work one problem. I was always very good at focusing. If I get into something, I can just tune out the world and just do my thing. And Berkeley gave me that opportunity. It had such rich things for me to bite into that I could train my focus and get my brain to function in a way to solve a problem. After graduating early from Berkeley, Janet chose not to continue on her path to get her PhD and instead began to work as a computer programmer. After taking her first job, she was finally able to achieve her dream of creating a home for her family. So in my last year at Berkeley, I finished all my math classes and I was thinking, hmm, I don't want to teach. I don't want to get a PhD. So what am I going to do? And I thought, oh, there's this thing called computer science. I'll, I'll go take a course, class in that and see how it goes. So I, I took several computer science courses and the, the recruiters came and I had an offer from IBM and an offer from Control Data. I worked as a programmer, computer programmer for Control Data. I made enough money to buy a house. So I graduated in March. I started working in April. I bought my house in June. I closed on that in June, so I was not wasting any time. So I was so happy to have a house and to work at a job, you know, eight to five. You can leave it there and go home and go play ping pong, go, go sailing, go do lots of things. You know, you didn't have a writing the term paper hanging around. So that, that, that first year was so, so marvelous. My mother and I had talked about having a house, you know, one day we'll have a house. It was a sign of having arrived. We are no longer fresh off the boat. We are, we, we are part of America to own a house. Oh, we were just so thrilled. We were so thrilled to have a yard, to each of our own bedrooms, to have a kitchen with 
tile counters. In those days, the, the, that was considered to be a good, good, um, good deal. And we had a family, step-down family room. We had a fireplace. And then we had these custom-made drapes that had lining, you know, the lining goes, the drapes go. Yes, we, we were thrilled with that material possession. I wanted to create a home. And that's the first thing I did when I finished college was to buy a home well, for my piano. And you know, so my mother would have a home and we, we would have roots. She had, she had done her battle. Finally, I achieved a dream after my father died. After my father died, our life was just cut off and we had to start another level. And now we're back to that level. Janet went on to establish a successful real estate business, acquiring and managing over 30 rental units. She eventually married and gave birth to her own daughter. I went in with the thought that I'll retire early. You know, when, when I have enough, I'll retire early. But this voice says never. So there was a conflict within me. There was a little girl who was very insecure and thought that there was never going to be enough. Always more. Always more. From the sudden poverty we fell into after my father died, that little girl got a shock. No, nothing prepared her for that. I've been retired 17 years. We're, we're not in the poor house. I think the little girl is appeased. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was co-produced by Jadel Marks and Natalia Lopez, with audio editing by Rick March and post-production by Greg Palmer. The original interview was conducted by Jadel Marks in the fall of 2021. Thank you to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for the use of their space to record the interview. This episode is part of a series exploring the stories and experiences of Asian Americans in a climate of anti-Asian rhetoric and increasing violence. It is produced as part of the Oregon Rises Above Hate Coalition and made possible by a generous contribution from Anne Nato Campbell. To learn more about the coalition, please visit OregonRisesAboveHate.com. And for more stories, visit TheImmigrantStory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.